bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, June 9th, 2020. I do hope that you and your family are safe and well. Now, the headline tax news from last week, in the community development world at least, was the IRS releasing COVID-19 disaster relief guidance for Opportunity Zones investors, funds, and businesses. This disaster guidance has five key parts or five key areas. I'll discuss how each of the five areas affects Opportunity Zones investors, fund managers, and businesses. I also have some insights to share from a just-released HUD toolkit on how local communities can use Opportunity Zones as an economic development tool. After that, I'll return to a consistent topic over the last few weeks, the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP. I'll discuss the recently enacted PPP legislation that generally expands the ability of borrowers to qualify for loan forgiveness, and it lengthens the loan term for those loans or portions of loans that are not forgiven. And I'll speak briefly about a potential legislative vehicle for federal community development incentives. And on the state taxes front, I'm going to share some potentially good news for taxpayers investing in California state low-income housing tax credits. And I'll close with details about the release of Novogratz's newest resource on the HUD Rental Assistance Administration Program. So, if you're ready, let's get started. The IRS, last Thursday, released a notice with some much-anticipated and very welcome disaster relief guidance for Opportunity Zones investments. This guidance addresses all the time-sensitive compliance requirements that were included in the Opportunity Zone Working Group's April 7th letter. Now, the letter that we had sent was requesting relief for OZ stakeholders that had been affected by the pandemic. Well, this IRS notice provides guidance relief on three significant areas. The notice is 2020-39. The IRS notice also clarifies two other regulatory relief provisions for a total of five relief areas. So the first area of disaster relief applies to investors, and it relates to determining the end of the 180-day period that investors have to invest capital gains in an opportunity fund. Now, under previous disaster relief guidance, investors who had had a 180-day period that had ended on April 1 up until July 15th, then the deadline to actually invest the end of the 180 days was extended to July 15th. Well, this updated guidance extends that deadline even farther, to the end of the year, to December 31st. So in short, this means that any taxpayers that had a 100-day period investment period that ended on April 1st or later up until December 30th of 2020 now has until December 31st, 2020 to invest in a qualified opportunity fund. So that's the first area of disaster relief, 180-day period for investors. The second area of disaster relief applies to opportunity funds and their compliance with the 90% investment standard. In the notice, the IRS said that qualified opportunity funds that would otherwise fail the 90% investment standard between April 1 and December 31st will be considered to have a reasonable cause for failure. That's significant. Now, as you know, the 90% investment test requires that a qualified opportunity fund hold 90% of its property at least 90% of its property, as qualified opportunity zone property. The IRS imposes the 90% test on the last day of the first six-month period of the taxable year, and then again on the last day of the taxable year for the qualified opportunity fund, and then it averages the two. 
and the minimum requirement is 90%. Well, the guidance says that any qualified opportunity funds with a test that falls between April 1 and December 31st this year will receive automatic relief. The IRS will disregard any failure during this period. A plain reading of this guidance appears to suggest that the next relevant testing date for all calendar year qualified opportunity funds isn't until June 30th of 2021. That relief is very generous. Now, the third area of IRS disaster relief applies to both opportunity funds and qualified businesses. And this area concerns the 30-month substantial improvement period. The substantial improvement period, this 30-month period, relates to the requirement that a qualified opportunity fund must improve used property within a 30-month period, and it must the improvement amount must be in excess of the adjusted basis as of the beginning of that 30-month period. Last week's guidance says that the period between April 1 of 2020 to December 31, 2020, is disregarded in determining any 30-month substantial improvement period, which in essence adds up to eight more months to meet the substantial improvement requirement, which in essence adds up to nine more months to meet the substantial improvement requirement. Now, in addition to these three relief provisions, the IRS also addressed two relief provisions contained in the final regulations. One applies to qualified businesses in regards to the working capital safe harbor. The other, the second, applies to funds, qualified opportunity funds, in regards to qualified opportunity fund reinvestment period. Now, regarding the working capital safe harbor, a qualified opportunity fund business that holds working capital assets that are intended to be covered by the working capital safe harbor before December 31, 2020, they will receive not more than an additional 24 months to expend the working capital assets an additional 24 months. And then regarding the fund level reinvestment requirement, any qualified opportunity funds generally have 12 months to reinvest some or all of return of capital or the sale or disposition of some or all of a qualified opportunity funds, qualified opportunity zone property. That's the general 12-month reinvestment rule that applies as a regular matter. Well, under the notice, if that 12-month period to reinvest includes January 20th, 2020, Well, then the fund has an additional 12 months to reinvest. In short, if January 20 fell anywhere in the 12-month reinvestment period for a fund, that fund gets an extra 12 months. Now, in addition to the guidance release covering these five areas, the IRS also issued an updated question and answer page. Now, this guidance certainly provides much-needed relief to many qualified opportunity funds and qualified opportunity zone businesses and investors affected by the pandemic. That said, There are many nuanced questions as to how this relief applies to many investors, funds, and businesses. The Novogratic Opportunity Zones Working Group is analyzing the notice, and we are going to discuss this notice and some of the ambiguities about the notice during our next working group call. If you have any questions about the notice or want to learn more about our Opportunity Zones Working Group, please reach out to the Novogratic office near you, or you can email cpas at novaco.com. And while we're speaking of Opportunity Zones, I want to let you know that HUD published a new resource designed to help communities use the Opportunity Zones Incentive as an economic development tool. The toolkit is called the Opportunity Zones Toolkit Volume 2, a guide to local best practices in case studies. Now, HUD did release Volume 1 of the Opportunity Zones Toolkit last September. The first volume was an introductory guide for local jurisdictions interested in Opportunity Zones economic development. The second volume, Volume 2, builds on the roadmap of Volume 1 with more detailed information and examples. HUD intends the toolkits 
to help local leaders create strategic plans for developing opportunity zones. One of the strategies is to understand the current environment in local opportunity zones. And part of understanding the environment of opportunity zones means assessing an area's housing needs. This knowledge will allow local leaders to align future public and private housing investment with local needs. Now, if you work with or for a local jurisdiction, if you need assistance with assessing your community's housing needs, Novogratz's valuation team can help. Novogratz's valuation group has extensive experience analyzing housing markets and preparing a variety of different types of market studies. This market research can help identify housing needs specific to your community. For example, you may find that renters in your community span a wide range of income levels and could benefit from mixed income housing development. Or the market study may reveal large families are renting in your area, suggesting a need for more three and four bedroom units. Whatever the particular needs are in your community, Novogratz can help you evaluate them. I encourage you to re- reach out to my partner, Blair Kenser. I'll include his contact information in today's show notes. Now let's return to the HUD toolkit. HUD also recommends that local jurisdictions evaluate how investor priorities and interests align with the community's economic development goals. HUD recommends that local leaders host investor networking events or consult available qualified opportunity fund directories to learn more about investors' goals. Opportunity fund investors have different areas of focus, both geographically and in types of investment. Learn more about how certain funds target their investment and what kinds of investments they aim to make, I do suggest you visit Novogratz's online opportunity funds list. Investment reported by qualified opportunity funds in the Novogratz list surpassed $10 billion in total equity raised. The Novogratz list shows funds' geographic footprints and investment focus areas. For example, if you work for a Midwestern town and need a mixed-use housing, you might be interested to see which opportunity funds operate in your region and who target mixed-use development investments. I'll include a link to the opportunity funds list in today's show notes. I'll also include a link to the HUD's Opportunity Zones Toolkit in this show notes as well. That way you can read more about HUD's recommendations and best practices. Next, I have an update on the Paycheck Protection Program. Last week, last Friday to be specific, President Trump signed the Paycheck Protection Program Flexibility Act into law. This legislation had strong bipartisan and bicameral support. In fact, the House passed the bill 417 to 1, and the Senate approved the legislation by unanimous consent. The PPP Flexibility Act makes several changes to the PPP intended to make the Forgivable Loan Program more useful for small business borrowers. For example, the PPP legislation extends the repayment period from two to five years for future borrowers and allows payroll tax deferment for PPP loan recipients. Yet one of the biggest changes is the bill extends the covered expense forgiveness period. That's right, it extends the covered expense forgiveness period from eight weeks to 24 weeks. The forgiveness period extension can be useful to many businesses, especially ones that are just now beginning to reopen after government-mandated shutdowns. As businesses ramp up operations again, they'll have the flexibility to use their PPP loan on authorized expenses until as long as the end of 2020. That's instead of needing to use all their funds within a condensed period of eight weeks. This bill also reduces the minimum amount of the PPP loan that borrowers need to spend on payroll. The new law reduces this payroll threshold from 75% to 60%. This lower threshold means businesses can now use up to 40% of their PPP loans on non-payroll costs, which includes things such as rent, mortgage interest, and utilities. Now, in general, 
the forgivable amount of a PPP loan diminishes as full-time equivalent staffing falls as well. Now, the PPP Flexibility Act provides additional leeway for businesses for restoring full-time employee-equivalent numbers after pandemic-related reductions. PPP borrowers who reduced their full-time equivalent staffing levels between February 15th and April 26th, they originally had until the end of this month, June 30th, to restore their employment levels. Under previous law, those borrowers needed to restore staffing levels to the February 15th levels by June 30th to avoid having a reduction in the amount of loan forgiven. Well, the PPP Flexibility Act, it extends the deadline to rehire workers until December 31st of this year, a six-month extension from the previous deadline. Now, the problem PPP borrowers saw with the original June 30th deadline was that many businesses are not yet reopened or at full capacity because of continued restrictions related to COVID-19. Under previous law, many businesses would have needed to rehire workers even if no work could be done. Some think that was the intent of the program. Others think that doesn't make a lot of economic sense. Well, extending the rehiring deadline to December 31st does give businesses more flexibility to rehire workers when additional staffing levels may be more useful. Prior to the PPP Flexibility Act, the SBA provided that employers who could document they attempted to rehire or reinstate the hours of an employee who then rejected the offer, that they wouldn't see an impact on their PPP loan forgiveness due to the staffing reductions. But this was the only exception to the requirement to reinstate staffing levels by June 30th. In addition to extending the reinstatement date to December 31st, well, the new law provides additional reinstatement exemptions beyond the one I just mentioned. For example, the SBA will not reduce forgivable loan amounts related to staffing reductions if a business can document its inability to return to the same level of pre-COVID business activity because of certain health and safety guidance related to COVID-19. So what's an example of something like that? Well, if a restaurant relies heavily on patrons dining in and CDC guidance provides that the restaurant should operate at only a quarter of its typical capacity, well, then the restaurant may be eligible for the rehiring exception. Not all COVID-related health and safety precautions, though, qualify for an exemption. Exemptions only apply to business-level employee reductions that result from health and safety precautions from the Secretary of Health and Human Services, the Director of the CDC, or the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And the key with all of these rehiring exemptions is timing and documentation. This is an area where Novogratik can assist. Novogratik has a knowledgeable team that can help you understand and document your eligibility for rehiring exemptions. And more broadly, Novogratik can also help you document your need for a PPP loan and loan forgiveness. Please contact Novogratik's Megan Murphy for more information if you'd like our assistance. I'll include her contact information in today's show notes. Now, let's turn to some other news. Federal legislative news in terms of what could be coming down the pike. House Democrats last week unveiled a nearly $500 billion surface transportation reauthorization and infrastructure bill. Nearly half a trillion dollars, said a different way. The House Transportation Infrastructure Committee plans to consider the bill next Wednesday, June 17th. Now, the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee has its version, a $287 billion version, of the Service Transportation Reauthorization Bill last year. The current transportation law, referred to as the FAST Act, expires on September 30th, 2020. Now, after the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee acts, we expect the Ways and Means and the Energy and Commerce Committees 
that they'll include related transportation infrastructure legislation under their jurisdiction. That's all of that is before lawmakers consider the entire bill on the House floor. And that's expected late this month or early July. Now, we're not likely to see the House Transportation Infrastructure Bill enacted as written, but provisions of the bill may be included in this so-called must-pass legislation later this year. And Congress will need to act before the September 30th expiration of the current Surface Transportation Bill. Now, I'm going to keep an eye on this legislation as a potential vehicle for proposals related to the low income tax credit, new markets tax credit, store tax credit, renewable energy tax credit, and opportunity zones. These are all infrastructure items. This is an infrastructure bill. Also, this bill could include something specifically related to infrastructure tax credits. And if you're interested in that, I do invite you to join the Novogratic Federal Infrastructure Tax Credit Working Group. This working group has a call scheduled for next Friday, a week from this Friday, next Friday, June 19th. I'll include a link in today's show notes with information on how to join the working group. Next, I have some potentially good news for affordable housing in California. The California State Legislature's state budget proposal eliminates a provision that would have been detrimental to affordable housing in California. Now, Governor Gavin Newsom has been advocating a limit on how much tax liability could be offset by California business tax credits. The limit that he set up is $5 million per taxpayer. That's $5 million per taxpayer per year for the next three years. Now, the legislature's budget proposal does keep that provision, but has a notable exclusion. It would exclude the state low-income housing tax credit. Now, the legislature and the governor still need to work out their differences, but this is very hopeful news. Now, I talked about Newsom's proposal a few weeks ago in this podcast, and I also wrote a no-synergic blog post on the topic. Newsom's proposed cap on the amount of state low-income housing tax credits that a taxpayer could claim would have had a dampening effect on investor appetite for the credit. Limiting investors' ability to use the credit would have likely driven down tax credit equity pricing. In turn, lower pricing would have resulted in fewer affordable homes built and preserved. I say this because the California Debt Limit Allocation Committee reported that in 2018, there were just 16 taxpayers that claim state low-income housing tax credits. Given that California has an additional $500 million in state low-income housing tax credits available in 2020, a $5 million cap per taxpayer would have had a significantly detrimental effect on tax credit equity pricing. Now, from a timing perspective, the legislature and the governor must generally reach agreement on the budget by June 15th, which is next Monday, and Governor Newsom would need to sign the budget by July 1st. I do also have an additional related piece of good budget news. The governor and the legislature do each propose, they both propose to keep the $500 million in state long-term tax credits in the budget. Now, how California addresses tax credit investments during the pandemic is important. States are feeling the financial effects, the adverse financial effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, and they need to address budget shortfalls. And some states may consider limiting the use of certain tax credits. Others may try to expand tax credit investment as an economic recovery tool. To help analyze this, my column in the July issue of the Novograd Journal of Tax Credits will look at how states responded during the Great Recession, during the prior recession, and what lessons we can apply to current economic challenges. My column is going to include some interesting data on what happened to affordable housing and historic rehabilitation development in states that limited or eliminated the ability to claim existing state credits. The results showed how important these incentives are to a state's economic recovery. If you don't already, do subscribe to the Nerf Guide Journal Tax Credits today to make sure you receive our July issue.
There's a link to subscribe to the journal in today's show notes. Now, I do want to share with you our most recent Novogratic offering. Novogratic has released a new handbook, released it last week. It's the 2020 Novogratic Rental Assistance Demonstration Handbook, or RAD Handbook. HUD's Rental Assistance Demonstration Program, or RAD, has revolutionized public housing in America. RAD allows public housing authorities to recapitalize public housing properties, converting them to Section 8 contracts. Since RAD's inception in 2012, Congress raised the unit cap for RAD conversions three times. The cap is currently at 455,000 units, which is nearly 40% of the public housing units in America. The RAD handbook provides guidance on what public housing authorities should consider before entering RAD, as well as early decisions to make in a RAD conversion, financing options, how to work with residents before and after RAD conversions, as well as a step-by-step guide to RAD, and there's much more. Now, if you represent a public housing authority, consider getting a copy to help you decide if RAD is right for your portfolio. If you're a developer who works with public housing authorities, this is a great reference for you too. Developers can also share the handbook with their partner public housing authorities as a way to introduce them to their options under the RAD program. And more, Novogratic has a team that works with public housing authorities. Whether you're considering RAD or if you just need some assistance with the financial compliance side of public housing, please call a Novogratic office near you for assistance. I'll share the link to our public housing authority team in today's show notes and tweet it out as well. And I'll share a link to buy the RAD handbook as well. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Before I close, I invite you to register for Novogratz's Capital Magnet Fund application webinar, which will be held next Friday, June 19th. This webinar will discuss funding availability, application round deadlines, and other key information for nonprofit affordable developers in CDFIs who are interested in applying for this competitive award. After the application period opened for the current round, I asked podcast listeners whether you'd be interested in an application webinar. Well, thank you to everyone who responded to our online survey. The response was overwhelmingly positive, and we at Novogratz are happy to provide this training opportunity. And once again, the Capital Magnet Fund application webinar is next Friday, June 19th. I'll include a registration link in today's show notes and tweet it out as well. Now, if you'd like one-on-one assistance with the application, please contact my colleagues, Brent Parker and Bob Ibanez. Their contact information is on today's show notes as well. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.